Let's pray one more time and ask God to be with us in his word. Father, we come before you again. Uh, Father, to ask that you would be gracious to us and speak to us in your word. Your word is good, God. Your word is the thing that fuels this. Lord, this is what we came to gather around. It's not good enough to hear from John or to hear from the singers or to hear from Nancy and Charlie. We need to hear from you. None of that matters if you don't speak to us, God. So please speak to us in your word, Father, and to help us to, to listen with humble hearts, with worshipful hearts, God. And God, we pray your spirit would, would work that in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you're not distracted by this Coke I have instead of water. We don't have any water in the office, so I'm drinking a Coke right now. So. So if I have a strange amount of energy by the end of the sermon, it's because of the caffeine I'm consuming. Um, right now, it's an interesting time in our nation because the, uh, the presidential election is going on. So you cannot, or I haven't been able to, turn on the TV or to go through my Twitter feed without seeing a million things about this presidential election, especially Donald Trump. People like to talk about him a lot. I mean, I was watching... CNN one day, it was really just on in the background, and I realized that for like a straight two-hour span, they just found more ways to keep talking about Donald Trump. It was like, Donald Trump tripped on his way inside today. I was like, why are we talking about this? But being the slightly nerdy person I am, I like to keep up with these things. I find it pretty interesting, though often as I've watched this kind of presidential election, often it feels very strange to me, like it's not real, because it's so absurd in many ways. It feels like a reality show or like punk i'm waiting for ashton kutcher to come out like gotcha you know what i'm saying i'm still looking for ashton he hasn't come out yet but i enjoy paying attention to these things because it's interesting even if you watch the news and they talk about it um you'll see these kind of divided points of view and i think one of the things this kind of politics shows us is just how kind of divided we are as a country in different ways how people think about things in politics but it's not just politics it's a lot of different kind of things, too. I think politics just helps me to see it. So, I, for instance, I talked to a friend who was really excited about a candidate that I could never imagine wanting to lead anything. Wouldn't even want him to lead a small group, much less a country. And, and as I was talking to her, she was just talking about the things that she found appealing about him, things that I never would have even thought about, that continue to show me that different people in different places, from different backgrounds, with different values, see things very differently. And they want things very different. So when you see a conversation then even about race publicly, it's very strange and polarized how people think about it or how people think of a number of social issues, a number of things. It's just people have different perspectives. They have different mindsets, different attitudes about things. And so it's very hard to get a bunch of people in a room who agree on some main things, who have the same mindset. And one of my questions is, I mean, our world is so divided on so many things. Is that what should be happening with those of us who are part of this family, those of us who are part of this church? So the truth is we, we are lots of people from different backgrounds with kind of different ways that we came up, got different, amount, different amounts of money, different kind of jobs, different kind of places we grew up in, just like you would see anywhere else. My, my question is, is it in any way possible for us who gather together as a church and, and follow Jesus together, is, 
there any way that we can have the same mindset, the same attitude? Well, I think the question is yes. Because in the text we're going to look at today, Paul is calling the Philippian church to that kind of unity. Right? He tells them to have the same mind, to be one uh, in the way that they think through things. And uh, he wants there to be certain things that this church is known for. And the things that he wants them to be known for is not what, for instance, some of us think churches should be known for. It's not for flashy services, but a common mindset. And that common mindset is humble service. Right, John said we're continuing this uh, short little series on service. And in this one, we're going to see that that common mindset God has called us to is this humble service. You know, there are certain groups of people when you go among them, you kind of know what to expect. You, you know what they're about, right? Uh, groups that are marked for certain things usually have a kind of DNA. So if I hear about some kind of animal rights rally sponsored by PETA, I'm probably not going to wear a fur coat there, right? I know what to expect. They don't like that. If I hear about a KKK rally, I'm not going to go at all. And if, I, <laughs> and if I happen to stumble by, I would not be surprised if they didn't embrace me warmly. Like they exist not to like, that's what they're about, right? And if I went to some kind of conference that was about atheism and how God didn't exist, I would not be surprised if people disagreed with me about God. Certain groups of people are known for certain kinds of things. And the thing that Paul is calling us to be known for is not hatred towards a particular group. It's not some kind of flashy swagger. What God has called us to be known for, our common DNA, our common mindset and attitude is that of humble servant. So then when people come among us, they don't see people putting their own interests first, just fighting with each other, trying to just one-up one another, but instead they see people who put one another's interests above their own. That humility is supposed to be our common DNA. And the sad thing is, people have come to expect other things from local churches because they've seen other things. So some people, when they think about the local church, they don't think humble service. They think hypocrisy. They think people who've hurt them. They think of money-hungry preachers. They think of hatefulness. And we, as a community, as a family of Jesus, when they come among our family, we want them to see this humble service. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And um, actually, I'm going to start at verse 1, so you, you can get a, a, a bit of a picture of where Paul is going, because when he begins to talk about Jesus and his humble service, he's talking about that in light of something he's already just commanded them to do. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 1. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to, to a church in Philippi, and this is how he's calling them to think about their lives as followers of Jesus. This is God's Word. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Here's our text. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's God's word. And when you read this text, there's a lot of questions in here, a lot of stuff that doesn't immediately make sense. We'll wade through those. But as we do that, I don't want us to miss the main point of this, that as a community of Jesus, our common mind, the attitude we have, should come from our common head, the head of the church, Jesus. Or to put it another way, the body of Christ should have the same humble mind as Christ. We are his body. He is our head. He directs us. And so we should have the same mind as Christ. That's the amazing thing. He hasn't called us just to come up with something that we can agree on. He said, no, no, your head is Jesus. Right? So everyone try to be like Jesus, and the unity will be there. And if we're going to take our cues from Jesus, then we need to pay attention to what he did. So let's do that, uh, and we're going to walk through it in three points. Number one, if we're looking at what Jesus did as it relates to this humble service. Number one, he let go. He let go. So just give me a little bit of time to unpack that. Verse 5 again says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What Jesus did, you know, he's telling them be of the same mind, one accord, one mind. He, he's repeating it over and over again. Here's that same mind he was talking about, the one that Jesus had. When we look at how our world works, our world teaches us that we should find some advantages that we have, even unfair advantages and privileges, and to just kind of exploit them however we possibly can, you know, to climb the ladder as much as we can, to get as successful as we can. I heard a podcast that was talking to uh, people who were starting new businesses, and it said, hey, the, the main key to being successful is find your unfair advantages and find ways to exploit them. Use them to crush the competition. Use them to get the upper hand. You have these advantages. That's how the world thinks about our privileges and advantages and power. And there's nothing wrong with using advantages for your benefit. But our problem is that our world teaches that we use our advantages purely for our interests at the expense of others. Right? It's to make sure somebody else doesn't get something so that you may. And this is the model of success stories in our world. I can think of many people who are famous for being successful, right, who are maybe even born with a lot of money, which is nothing wrong with that. They have crazy power and privilege from the first day they were on the earth. They used that money as an advantage. They took their positions of power, discriminated against others so they could get more power. They left their spouses because they didn't really serve their interests, so they found a, a younger, newer version, and they were rich and powerful so they could. And they keep using these riches and power in different ways to be more and more rich and powerful. And this could be a number of different people. But we get a, a stark, drastic contrast when we look at the life and death of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus, in fact, had more power and wealth and authority in eternity past than anyone ever has who's lived on this earth. 
His power wasn't just in earthly stuff. We're talking about the Lord Jesus who created everything and owns everything. We're talking about wealth, a couple billion dollars. Jesus owns it all, right? And yet Jesus wasn't purely self-interested like them. Instead, Jesus used that position and that power and that privilege and that authority to lay his life down for the interests of others. Exactly the opposite of what our world tells us to do. So when Paul wants to tell us about the servant mindset, again, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. At this point, you're saying, okay, Trip, this is already getting weird. Why is he saying that Jesus was in the form of God? What does that mean? That word there, that Greek word, Morphe is trans, translated as form. It could mean form or, or shape, or as the NIV says, nature. And it basically means this expression uh, of an essence or, or reality or a nature. So when it says Jesus was in the form of God, he's not trying to say Jesus was like a shapeshifter, right? Or Jesus is some kind of transformer. He was just in the form of God for a moment. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that Jesus took many different forms at many different times and he was in the form of God at a second. He's talking about Jesus expressing who he is at his very nature, God, right? So it's like me saying my Honda is in the form of a car. It looks like a car because it's a car. And Jesus displayed his Godness because Jesus is God. He was displaying his nature. That's what he means when he says Jesus was in the form of God. So just to be really, really clear for a moment, if you're wondering for a moment, what exactly does this church believe about who Jesus is? And yes, we believe really firmly from Scripture that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that God is one God in three persons that we call the Trinity. That's very confusing because all other beings that we know are just one person. So like I'm tripped. It's just one person in here, just me. And so when we start thinking about the Trinity, we're like, that doesn't make sense. It has to be three different gods. But it's because the only beings we're used to interacting with are human beings. God is entirely other than us so that he can be one God with three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about Jesus, he's not a God. He is God. He's not a part of God. He is God, as is God the Father, as is God the Spirit. And so someone may say, but Trip, that's not what it says in the passage. It says he's in the form of God, especially our Muslim friends who say, no, no, Jesus is just a prophet. Y'all made that up. That's not even in the Bible. Or our Jehovah Witness friends who would say, no, no, Jesus isn't God. He's a God. Or so many that would say, that's not even what the Bible teaches. Or our Witness Pentecostal friends who say, no, 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 God was the Father sometimes. He was Jesus other times. He was a spirit at other times. What you're saying is not true. Let me just, in case you think I'm making that up, or this passage isn't clear enough, I I just want to very briefly just let the Bible interpret the Bible in case you're wondering what the Bible says. In case you want to make Paul wasn't that clear here, you're reading that into that. What about what Paul says elsewhere, right? In Romans 9, 5, he says, uh, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. How is it that Jesus is not God? He's another created being if he's the one who created everything. He must be God. 
Titus 2.13, Paul talks about us waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. I mean, oh, that's just, that's just Paul. What about the Apostle John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, what about some of the other disciples? How about Thomas speaking to Jesus says, my Lord and my God. That seems pretty clear. What about Peter? He says he's a servant and apostle of Jesus to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received faith. Even the Pharisees, those who didn't like Jesus, understood he was calling himself God. John 10, 33, we're stoning you. We're not stoning you for any one of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They said we're stoning you because you're making yourself equal with God. Even Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these aren't even close to all of the examples. Scripture is abundantly clear. Jesus is not just another man. Jesus is not a God. Jesus is God. And let me tell you why that's so important. Because this is the Jesus who in this text humbles himself and becomes a servant. That makes the humble service of Jesus far more incredible. We're not just talking about a person humbling themselves. We're talking about God, the Son, himself. This is incredible. And as Paul goes on, right, he says, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So again, he's equal with God. And one of the reasons this matters is because the only reason Paul brings up Jesus' being in nature God and and, uh, being equal with God is to show us the way that he didn't hold on to that equality in a way where he tried to take advantage of it to serve himself. Paul brings up that being in essence God to contrast it with what we would think God would do if he was on the earth. Instead of grasping onto it or holding onto it, Jesus, instead of holding on to this equality with God, he lets go of it. That's what I mean when I say Jesus, let go. Translation said he emptied himself. Others say he made himself nothing, meaning he didn't exploit that equality with God or take full advantage of all those privileges. He's not saying Jesus stopped being God. He didn't empty himself of being God. He made his equality with God as something that basically didn't count or didn't matter, that he wasn't trying to use it for his advantage, but for the advantage of other people. He didn't use it for selfish ambition, but he used it to pour himself out in humble service. And that is incredible. And our minds can't even really understand it. One thing it reminded me of, and you're going to laugh at me, is a movie called Air Force One, starring Harrison Ford. Now, I don't even know why I've seen this movie. I think I watched it on accident when I fell asleep on a couch, and then it was kind of on, and I kind of saw it. But in this, I'm just trying to cover myself. Um, In this movie, you know, Harrison Ford is the president, and Air Force One gets hijacked, so they're in the air. That's impossible, but it gets hijacked, and it gets even more impossible than this. It gets hijacked, the president and his whole family, everybody's freaking out because the president is being held hostage. And so they come up with this brilliant plan to rescue the president. They say, hey, we're going to fly another plane beside it, and we're just going to do a zip line. 
And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to zip line the president and his whole family to this other plane, and we're good. So somehow, somehow someone let the script be written, but somehow they find a way to do it. And so when it's time for everybody to go, everybody's like, you first, Mr. President. And here's what he says. He says, I refuse to go. I want you guys to go first. And they're like, no, no, no. You're the president. If we die, nobody cares. But you're the president. The world is going to end. You need to just go first. And he refuses to go first. And instead of using his authority to demand that he's able to do it, he uses his authority to demand that everybody go before him so that he can go last. And as you watch it, even though this is entirely implausible, you still tear up. You think, man, this could never happen in a million years. But if it did, that would be so nice. And I think this is, in essence, what the Lord Jesus did. Where he has this status of power and authority and privilege that affords him the opportunity to only be served and to only look out for his own interests. If anybody should be able to get off that plane first, it's the president. If anybody should only be served by others, it is God himself. But Jesus still makes that status of no account. He empties himself, made himself Nothing, as the text says. Put the interests of others above his own. That's a really hard thing for us to do, right? Whenever you are in a place where you have some privilege or power or authority, even, even in very small things, even if, like when you were a kid and your mom asked you to watch your brothers and sisters or something, you're feeling yourself, right? You're like, you can't have no snacks. I'm in charge. I eat the snacks. Matter of fact, you go get me the snacks, you know what I'm saying? it's very hard for us to have any amount of authority or power or influence in our hands without the first thing we think about being ways we can use that for our own self-interest. So one of my questions for you is, what kind of privileges or rights or status or, or power or authority do you have that you can let go of? Not in the sense that you have to get rid of them, but that you would not take advantage of it for your own interests all the time, but also for the interests of other people. Maybe you just have a nice home, right? You could use that only for yourself to enjoy it all the time. You know what would be a good thing is if you invited other people into that. You know, maybe you have some kind of position of authority at your work, right? Maybe you're a manager. Maybe you're somebody's boss. How can you use that not just to serve yourself but to serve others? And there's some things that seem insignificant to us that are still kinds privilege and power and authority, if you just have a house that you live in, if you have any money, if you have a job, if you have friends that you have influence with, in what ways are you thinking about those things for the sake of serving other people? There's nothing that you've been given that's been given to you just for your self-interest. There's literally nothing that you have in your possession. There's literally no person that you know. There's literally, there's nothing. There's no gift that you have, no situation you're in that's there purely for your own self-interest. Anything that's been given to us, it's given to us for the glory of God. It is given to us to enjoy, but also to be able to serve other people. And what would it mean for us that when we come across any kinds of position, a power, a privilege, to think about before we're thinking about the ways that we can serve ourselves and get ahead, we're thinking about how we can use that to serve other people. This is what Jesus has shown us so clearly. Paul describes what that emptying himself looked like, taking the form of a servant. That's that same word form he used earlier, play on words. He who was 
in very nature, God took on the nature of a servant that he served. I want us to catch how absurd this is at times, that God became a servant, took on the nature of a servant, was, was born as a man. That word of a servant means slave, right? A, a slave in that culture, someone who has no basic human rights. And Jesus came to earth and surrendered all the rights and privileges that are his, even those that most other human beings had in order to serve others. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And too often we posture ourselves as kings instead of servants. When we come into a situation, into a room, especially if we have any amount of influence or power or privilege in that situation, we want to be kings, posture to allow people to serve us. And Jesus, who actually is the king of all kings, postures himself as a servant. Any status you have should not keep you from serving. Husbands. Now, you should not assume that the fact that you are the leader of your family, that you're the head of your household, that that means that you don't have to serve your wife and your kids, that you're there just to be served. That is not in the Bible, brothers. Right? And any time we have that in our hearts, we should be rebuked by Scripture. We, we should not assume that there's anything that we're too good for because we're the man or we're the head of the household. If you think you're too good to wash some dishes or to change some diapers, then I don't think you've met Jesus. The kind of insult it is to say, I'm too good to serve in this way, but then to look at the way the very Son of God served, to say that's beneath me. I hope you understand what you're saying about Jesus. That he himself is beneath you, that he served in a way that you never even could, to much lower depths than you could. Husbands, God has called you to love, and to serve your family. Even to the point where the death of Jesus is the example given to us in Ephesians 5 of the ways that we should love our wives. How are you trying to obey laying your life down for your wife if you can't even wash dishes for your wife? Yeah, I mean, dishwashing is not given just to win. That's not in the Bible. I don't see that anywhere. Right, so these, these are things that we've made up. And, and this is true for any kind of place, any relationship we have, any job we have. There is no service that's beneath you because you're just higher than that. Christ shows us that very clearly. And when we think about the DNA of this church, look, serving is a big part of what we do as a church. There's a lot of stuff to be done, especially in a church plant, right, because nothing is in place. Nothing is in place, right? There, there's so many ways that we have to serve. And this is one of, one of your pastors. I just want to say thank you. There's so much stuff. That, I mean, there's no way that me, John, and Richard, and Mo could do everything. I mean, this, it's impossible. And we don't want to. And we're so grateful that God has sent you guys who, who love and serve. I mean, there's so many people who serve in ways that people won't even see, that people have no idea of. But this thing would not be able to move. We would not be able to function as a family if it weren't for your service. So I just want to say thank you, and I want to encourage you to keep it up. And for those of us who who still haven't found ways to serve well, I don't just mean even just signing up for a ministry. About I mean, 
finding ways to be in people's lives and to serve, to help our family, to love one another, I want to encourage you to find ways to do that. The Cranes have been an amazing example of that, where they have just humbly served time and time and time again. And that's the kind of DNA that we want in our church. That's the kind of DNA that Jesus showed us in the way that he laid his life down for us. So we want to keep that up. So when we look at Jesus and his humble service, the first thing, he let go. Right? He, he didn't grasp that equality with God. Instead, he used it in order to serve. Second thing we see that Jesus did in this text, that first one was the longest, don't be afraid. Number two, he came down. So not only did Jesus let go, not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, he also came down. He humbles himself. He's the most high God, right? It says God dwells in a high and holy place, but he humbled himself. Humility is something that Christians talk about a lot. You hear that word a lot. But what is humility? How do you actually even know if you're humble? I talked about the presidential election a little bit earlier. I read an article about one candidate. They asked him if he thought he was humble. Here's what he says. There's more humility than you would think, believe me. He said, we're all the same. I mean, we're all going to the same place, probably one of two places, you know, but we're all the same. And I do have actually much more humility than a lot of people would think. I'll tell you that, believe me. Now, I also don't know what that means. Okay, that that also makes no sense to me. I don't know. It makes me wonder if this anonymous individual knows what humble means, I don't know what, I don't know what that was. And I just find it so interesting. I don't know if you can help me. I don't know what he's saying. But what we're left to ask ourselves, because that word is thrown around so much in strange ways, and even when someone asks you if you're humble, it's kind of a trap. You just got to say no. If you say yes, it's like, no, you're not. You know what I'm saying? Because you just then, that was proud of you, you know. So you, it's a hard thing to think through. But what is humility? Some of us think humility is just like thinking terrible things about ourselves. Like, man, I'm not good enough. I'm not this or that. That's not the humility that Scripture calls us to. And this text gives us a beautiful picture of it. Where it doesn't have humility as just kind of staying out here as this random abstract principle. It's really kind of concrete and exact. It connects it with a specific act, the, the service and the obedient death of the Lord Jesus. And I think when we look at what Jesus did here, we'll we'll see humility isn't about thinking lowly about ourselves, but thinking rightly about ourselves in light of who God is, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm nothing. It's no, this is who God is, and I see myself in light of him. I'm not the center of the universe. God is. Yes, I'm made in God's image. Yes, there is value and worth to me. God loves me. He delights in me, but God is God, and I'm not. C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Good way to put it. Look at how Jesus displayed his humility in this passage, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see humility is a mindset, but it's not just a mindset, right? It shows up in actions. Zach said he was found in human form, again, just meaning he became a man, put on human flesh, which just don't let that pass by without thinking about that. That the Son of God, who, who didn't have a birthday because he just always existed. Just think about that. Everyone you know had a time they started to exist. Not the Son of God. He just always existed. 
But then he submitted himself to being born as a man. That he became a fetus in a womb. I mean, God is, is incredible. He created this complex world and an ecosystem and our bodies to work how they do. And then he put on one of these bodies and wrapped his divinity in a body. That Jesus is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases at any time. And then he submitted himself to parents that he created and did what they told him to do. I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about what Jesus did when he became a man. And we could just spend all day saying statements like that that make no sense that God would do such a thing. But the crazy thing is that Jesus, God the Son, humbled himself. God humbled himself. And the truth is the only way God could be humbled is if he humbled himself. Some of us get humbled like when we take an L or we fail at something or when somebody beats us. Like one of the pastors recently was very proud about his basketball game, and then he got beat by somebody, and he was humbled. And it wasn't by me because I'm terrible. I've been humbled for a while. But he's, he's not talking trash anymore. But here's the thing about Jesus. There is nobody who could defeat him who could humble him. Right? There's no like somebody who's like, ah, you're not who you thought you were. The only way that God the Son would be humbled is if he humbled himself willingly. A choice that God made to make himself low. He, he came down. Again, not for his own interest, but for ours. Her one pastor defined humility like this. It's the opposite of entitlement. The humility is the opposite of entitlement. And I found that really, really helpful. Because an entitled heart is always saying, serve me because I deserve that. Give that to me because I deserve that. How dare you? I deserve better than that. That's what an entitled heart is always walking around saying. But a humble heart says, I'll serve you whether you deserve it or not. Right? The, the humble heart says, I'll give to you whether or not I deserve it. And yeah, you wronged me, but I deserve much worse than what you gave me. So I'll still serve you. The entitled heart cannot serve anybody else because it thinks that it only exists to be served. That entitlement, instead of gratitude and humility, will not allow us to serve. An entitled heart cannot serve from a real place. That's why we want to fight for this humility that Jesus calls us to. And don't we see this during our work weeks? Like when we're working and you know, it's hard to work with this sense of gratitude that God allows us to be a co-worker with him and work in his creation because instead we have this sense of entitlement. Like, man, I deserve better than this. My boss talking to me this way. I need to be doing this and that. I'm better than this. He ain't. I should have his job. But we, we have this sense of entitlement, and we have to fight it. I like thinking of humility as the opposite of entitlement. And, of course, Paul's talking about the church, a communal humility, so we want to encourage it in each other, not just as individuals, but as a church. One of the ways we can do that, I think what we just did right here with Nancy and Charlie on the stage is a good way to encourage it. When we see somebody living their lives in humble ways, encourage them in it and tell other Christians like, hey, look at them. Some of us would do better to have a few less sharp rebukes and a few more encouragements towards good things, right? Some of us, we, the only words we speak is sharp rebukes. Like, good morning, let me tell you something you did wrong. Some of us would do better to say, hey, here's an amazing example of humility. I think you should hang out with Nancy and Charlie. I think you should hang out with these folks who exhibit that. But it is also a good thing to call out pride when we see it. 
It's a good thing to lovingly encourage one another to turn away from those things. It's good for us to sit under the word together because if this is the mind of Christ that we're trying to gather around, where do we find the mind of Christ? Where do we soak in the mind of Christ? Where do we learn how the mind of Christ thinks? Of course, in the word of Christ. That's why we gather around this word every single week. And one of the best ways we can encourage humility in someone else is, of course, trying to be humble ourselves, even in how transparent and vulnerable we are, even in our confession. Whenever I have confessed sin to somebody, almost every time they will confess sin back. It could even be something terrible and urgent, like, hey, I just stole this car and burned down a house. Hey, you know, I was rude to my wife yesterday. It's like, hey, we should deal with the house burning down first. But there's something that happens when you approach someone with brokenness and vulnerability that leads them to want to respond in similar fashion. One of the ways we can encourage humility in one another is to pursue it ourselves. That also helps us to get the log out of our eye as we point out specks in other people's. But it is our responsibility to build that in one another. And so since humility is not just a mindset, but it shows up, I mean, the way he talks about the humility of Jesus, that that humility led him to be obedient to the point of death. Humility always shows up in obedience. So there's an answer to that question. How do you know if you're humble? Are you obedient to God? Humility and obedience cannot be disconnected, right? So when we trusted Jesus, we realized I'm incapable. I'm not the best Lord of my life. But we get proud and think we know better than him. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says even death on a cross because it was a shameful way to die. The only people who would be killed on a cross are slaves and foreigners. They wouldn't even let Roman citizens be killed that way. Yet God himself, God the Son, submitted himself to that kind of death to serve other people. There's nothing Jesus considered below him for the sake of the interests of others, not even death on a cross. For those of us in this room who don't know Jesus, I hope part of what's impressed on you right now is the depth that Jesus would go to to make it possible for us to be restored to God. Because we've been separated from God because of our lack of humility, because we've put ourselves in a place of God and we, we sinned against God. And that's broken our relationship with God. But that God loves us so much. Like that passage John 3.16 said, that he sent Jesus. And this is what Jesus went through. Right? Sometimes someone does you a favor and it didn't cost them nothing. So it, like if, if, if your wife and your husband brings you some flowers, but you know it was like a kid right by your house handing flowers out for 50 cents, you don't feel the same like, like it, you just gave them some dirty change. That wasn't thoughtful. You didn't think of it. And sometimes we think like the death of Jesus was something he did like on the way to do something else. No, no. Jesus became a man and submitted himself to the most shameful, excruciating way that he could have died just to make possible that you would trust in him. That is great love. And I, I pray if you don't know Jesus that you would think about that great love and that you would let go of your sins and, and trust him. Jesus, that you believe in him, that you entrust your life to him. Right? The, the way that we're saved is we, we believe on Christ. 
trust that he died and he rose from the grave and that he's the rightful Lord of our life. And we try to let go of the stuff that put him on the cross in the first place. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus, please come talk to us after the service. We want you to know what it means to know Jesus. Last thing. He was lifted up. Right, so Jesus let go. Jesus came down, but lastly, he was lifted up. And one of the cool things in this last section here is, you know, in verses 5 to 8, there's all this lowly language. Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. He became a servant. It's this shameful death. But then when you get to 9 to 11, there's all these glorious, amazing words. And if you notice what Jesus does in this text, he empties himself. He humbles himself in what God the Father does is he exalts Jesus, and he bestows the name on him. And some of us only focus our lives on exalting ourselves, where Jesus, the one who deserves exaltation, spent his life laying his life down. There's so much to learn from Jesus here. The text says that God exalted him. And, you know, Paul isn't saying that Jesus got some kind of promotion, that Jesus wasn't exalted beforehand. He's, he's, Jesus has always been Lord, the Messiah to come. But when Jesus died and he rose from the grave, he's now at this recognizable place of being the Messiah and Lord. People slept on him before that he was who he said he was. Then when he died and then got up after it, it was a little more clear that he is who he said he was. So when it talks about God exalting him, it's talking about this new position where he is the proven Lord, where he's actually gone through and paid for the sins of sinners. And now that name above every name, he's recognizable there. And it talks about this name above every name and how all of creation will respond to it. Look at what it says, verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, there are people who deny that Jesus is who he said he was still. There will come a day when even those who have rebelled against Jesus and don't submit to Jesus will recognize that he is who he said he was. Every knee will bow. And some of us, the first thing that we can think of when we see this is, okay, I'm trying to be humble. Where's my exaltation? Right. Is, it, is there a promise here that all of us will be exalted in this life if we uh, show humility in that? That promise just isn't in these scriptures. God may exalt us for the humble things that we do, but God hasn't promised to do that in this life. And the problem with prosperity teaching is not that Jesus didn't purchase health and wealth and prosperity for us. The main problem is instead of saying we wait until eternity to get them, most preachers say we get them all right now. And what Scripture says is that that exaltation, those rewards are waiting for us in heaven. There may be some on the way there. But for most of us, for many of us, we'll be experiencing the suffering of of our Lord as we follow him. And that exaltation will come in the next. And the thing that we want to pray for so that we can have this mind is that God would have us be more concerned with the exaltation of Jesus than the exaltation of ourselves that our minds would not so consistently only go to the ways that we can be exalted, but that we would want to live our lives to show off this truth that Jesus really does have the name above every name. Jesus really is the one that deserves to be exalted because he is God. And not only is he God, he's the lamb that was slain for sinners like us. 
that the grace and mercy of Jesus is like none that's ever been shown before. So that if God is going to have our church have this one mind, it's going to come out of an understanding of the rightful place that Jesus sits because of who he is and what he's done, done on our behalf. And my prayer is that we don't feel hopeless in this because actually the passage says that this mindset is ours right now in Christ Jesus. Jesus has accomplished that for us. And so we're fighting every day to take hold of this humble servant mindset that Jesus showed us and that Jesus has already given us. So my prayer is that we leave this, this time encouraged to go after it, encouraged to point one another to go after it, remembering that when we fail, it's the same death of Jesus that gives us grace to turn and ask God for grace to do better. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you once more thanking you, Father, for your word. And God, we pray that you would work that word into us, God. Father, help us to be servant-minded like Jesus. Father, and if we have difficulty grasping what it actually means to be servant-minded, to be humble in that way, God, we pray that you would help us to meditate on and to stare at and to focus on what Christ has done for us. Father, make our church like your son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.